I have titled this sermon simply, The Baptism of Jesus, and I just have two points today, so let me just sort of say how this will break down. Uh, The first point is called The Baptism Jesus Gives, and that's verses 10 through 12, The Baptism Jesus Gives. Point number two is The Baptism Jesus Received, and that's verses 13 through 17. So the baptism Jesus gives, and then the baptism Jesus received. I'm going to reread uh, verses 7, starting just before our text, 7 through 12. And before I read this, let me go ahead and warn you, warn you the, the sermon, the passage at least, starts off on a pretty intense note. And so it's, a, it's, it's interesting off with, it with, with something quite like this. So we're going to start off where we picked up last, where we, start, where we left off last Sunday. Follow with me here, verses 7 through 12. But when he, that's John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, we will talk more about this, Lord willing, in Matthew chapter 11. Do you remember John the Baptist later in prison has doubts about Jesus? Astonishing, right? He sends his disciples to ask Jesus on his behalf, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? John the Baptist struggled with doubt about Jesus in the prison cell. And I believe you see what may have caused those doubts even by the way he articulates his message here. Now, nothing John says is wrong. Everything he says here is the divinely inspired Word of God, but I do think that John did not fully comprehend yet that there would be two separate comings of the Messiah. I don't think John fully had that formed in his mind. He thought what many people thought, which was when the Messiah is to save, he will also come to judge, and those two acts would happen at the same time. And that's why Jesus sort of threw him off in a sense, because Jesus came and he was, he was humble, and he was not going to break a bruised reed or quench a faintly burning wick. And John said, this is not the judgment I was expecting. I thought there would be fire and brimstone with the Messiah's appearing. And yet Jesus came humble, and John begins to wonder about, his, about who he was. And of course, John dies faithfully, trusting Christ at the end of the story. But you can see here already this anticipation of salvation and judgment right around the corner in in John's mind. Well, he is obviously correct that Jesus will bring both judgment and salvation, but the way in which it unfolds was unexpected in many ways uh, by even the people alive at the time of Christ. So let's look here. If you look at verse, well, I won't reread. I just read them. Verses 7 through 10, here's what John is saying. John says to his crowd of listeners, I am here preparing you for the coming of the kingdom. And the kingdom involves the king, primarily. Where the king is, the kingdom is there in seed form. And if the king king is about to come on the scene, you better believe the kingdom is in our midst, and soon the kingdom will come in its fullness. And John is preparing people for what is to come, and he wants them to repent 
and to show that they're serious about their repentance, demonstrating a public act of baptism, representing washing away sin, turning away from sin, and starting over new as they begin to trust God and the coming Messiah. Now, as people begin to do this, John calls out that group that we talked about last week, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he says those words that are quite shocking. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He says, listen, you guys are trusting in your religious ancestry and background, being ethnic descendants of Abraham for your right standing with God, along with your law-keeping and those kinds of things. But he says, you, you don't truly understand the need to repent. So we were warned last week we should not rely on something in our past uh, that might be something other than repentance and faith in Christ. And it could be uh, a prayer that I prayed when I was young. Uh, It could be um, the fact that my parents, you know, in my case, literally, my parents, my dad has been a pastor my whole life, and my mom grew up as a missionary child in Africa and the Congo for much of her early years. So I could could try to claim my ancestry, say, I'm from missionary missionary grandparents, and my father's a pastor, and I could try to claim that. That is going to do me no good eternally before God in terms of salvation unless I take advantage of what my parents taught me about Christ and by faith turn and trust in what Christ has done for me. So the need is for there to be repentance and for there to be in keeping with repentance. The quote from last week was not perfection, but a change in direction coming from a new affection for Christ. So again, ask yourself that question. Not are you perfect? No one in this room is perfect. Has there been a change in the direction of your life that comes from a true love and affection for Christ Jesus? And is it bearing fruit in keeping with repentance in your life and in mine? Well, as John preaches this message, he ends with this note. Let me reread verse 10, which is quite intense. Listen, could you not hear people call John names? Oh, he's just one of those hellfire and brimstone preachers. Can't listen to those people. They're just legalists. They They don't really love people. We need to be careful sometimes how we label things. There is an unloving way to preach about hell. Believe me, we've probably seen it. There, there is an unloving way to preach about hell that is full of, full, full of uh, self-righteousness in the way it is presented. But my, my goodness, there's also, a loving, there's also an unloving way to not preach about hell. Because if you leave it out, you are not loving those who listen. And John is not trying to please people, he's trying to save people. Those are not the same thing. Trying to please and trying to save are not the same. And John says this message, verse 10, even now... The axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Shane and I were talking a few weeks ago, and uh, this isn't the same passage he was talking about, but this idea of fruitfulness, confusing to especially newer Christians, perhaps, who've heard about this. There can be a confusion uh, that you could think that fruit is how many people who've been converted listening to you talk to them. Or fruit may be evident changes in other people that you're ministering to. Listen, we, we cannot control those things. Uh, just like the parable of the sower, we throw the seed indiscriminately on all soils, and we just pray for the Lord for a harvest. We can't control the results. The Lord, that's in His hands. Uh, but the fruitfulness here is not how many converts can you claim for yourself. That's not what it's saying here. The fruit that John is speaking of is a transformation of the character of your life. Is there a, a, a true love for the Lord, a joy in the Lord, a peace that comes from the Holy Spirit that is growing in your life? And again, just to be clear, the devil has duplicates 
and forgery versions, false versions, counterfeit versions of the fruit of the Spirit. You, you can meet a, an unbeliever who has apparent affection for others and love and seemingly a kind of happiness or joy, but are they coming from the Holy Spirit and from Christ, and are they directed towards God Himself? Do we see transformation of character that is developing and a love for Christ that is not perfect but is growing and increasing over time? Well, John is going to mention fire at the end of verse 10, at the end of verse 11, and at the end of verse 12. And in most English Bibles, I think the last word of 10, 11, and 12 is the word fire. John is preaching about fire, and it's very hard for me to believe that the fire in verse 11 is completely different from the fire in verse 10 and the fire in verse 12. I think all three fires are referring to largely the same reality. So let me speak here about the baptism that Jesus Himself gives. Look at verses 11 and 12 again. John says, comparing his baptism to Jesus' baptism, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. There's been a debate throughout the centuries about verse 11, to be baptized by Jesus, and it says uh, to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire. We all, I think, would agree that being baptized by the Holy Spirit is a positive thing. That's a good thing. That's what happens when we are converted. When we are converted, we are baptized into Christ by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12 speaks of this. If you are a true Christian, you are baptized into the Spirit. You, you, you are part of that. You have the baptism of the, at the moment of new birth. We, we agree that that is a positive thing. The question is, is baptism with fire considered positive or negative? In other words, is it a good thing? I want the baptism of fire, or is it a bad thing? No, 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 that, that's what I don't want. I want salvation. I don't want the baptism of fire because that is judgment. Which is it? And there's been a big debate. Now, I think that a big point to make is that fire is mentioned in the verse before and the verse after, and in both places, the fire is fire of judgment. So, I think the context has to be a controlling factor here. But I do think, and I'm, I'm tentative on this, I don't, I don't want to... Uh, stake everything on this. So I think that there's a negative aspect of the fire I think is clear, but could there also be a positive aspect to the fire at the same time? And I think the answer is possibly yes. Let me try to explain briefly what I mean here. Let me just read a few verses. You won't have time to turn here from the Old Testament. Just listen. Don't try to keep up with me on this. Uh, it'll take too, too much time, I think. Isaiah 4, listen to these words. Predicting the future, and he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Now see, here fire is a purging fire, a purifying fire. Those who do not know the Lord receive the fire as judgment. It, it burns them up, to use the language of the passage. But to those who are imperfect but growing and loving the Lord, when the fire comes, it burns away imperfection, but it leaves the real thing perhaps intact. I think that's possible. Uh, Malachi 3, similarly. I've read this before, but let me continue reading. Behold, I send my messenger, John the Baptist, who will prepare the way before me. That's Yahweh. That's Jesus. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple. And then it says this, but who can endure the day of His coming, the day of Christ? Who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire, 
and like fuller's soap. This is a cleansing and refining fire as well as a judgment fire. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Now, do you hear? If you do not know the Lord, when his holiness comes in flaming fire, it will be to your everlasting destruction. It will be a fire of judgment. But if you truly know the Lord, it sounds as though the fire will burn away the imperfection in you and leave nothing but what is pure, like gold that is put into a fire and the blemishes away, but the gold is left beautified. It's left perfected. It is left as it should be. Malachi 4, the very next chapter, says this, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. So here's fire imagery again. When all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. Now, do you hear it? The fire is going to make the evildoers stubble. They will receive the judgment of fire. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You can look at Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit is poured out, there's tongues of fire over their heads. 1 Corinthians 3, the judgment, the fire will test the quality of each man's work. The, the, the dross will be burned up, the, but the substantial materials will, will remain, and on you could go. So let me, let me draw this together to say this in this opening section here. Final judgment is wonderfully good news, and it is terrifyingly bad news at the same time. And here, here's what I mean. If you talk to the average person... I've done these interviews in the past. I'd like to do more in the future. You go up to a UGA student, you introduce yourself, you're doing a survey, asking them some questions about their spiritual beliefs, and you ask them, how good are you on a scale of 1 to 10? I have had many, many students here at UGA tell me that they're, oh, I'm a 7 out of 10, I'm a 6 out of 10. Maybe you're lucky you get an 8 or 9 out of 10. I've even heard some people get some 10 out of 10s. You're always like, wow, that's pretty impressive when someone gives you that number. You, sir, are perfect. That is astonishing. Uh, so, wh whatever the number is, people generally give you a pretty positive number. By the way, I have, give, have people give me really low numbers, and I know that they're ready for the gospel. When someone says, I'm a zero, I'm a one, I go, perfect. Just the person I'm looking for. Let me tell you some news. There's a Savior, and they're actually ready to hear it. But most of us are too proud of our good works to care about a Savior because we think we are the Savior of ourselves. And so, when I have these conversations, I will bring these things up. And they, when they, if you ever ask them about hell or judgment, People will say, oh, I don't know about that. I don't, I, don't think a, a God, I don't think God would send people there. But if you start asking them questions about, let's take the classic Hitler question or the Joseph Stalin question or the Osama bin Laden question, suddenly the people change their view pretty quickly. Oh, yeah, I know. I think God certainly. Yes, if there's a God, certainly he would punish Hitler in the afterlife. I mean, surely he would. So in other words, we know deep down evil should be punished. We know that. Like it, it is written on us. Romans 1.32, Jerry and I often talk about this verse. We know this is talking about unbelievers and believers. We know, well, actually, this verse is talking about unbelievers only. Let me be clear. It says, we know that those who practice such things, the list given in that chapter, deserve to die. And yet, we not only do those things, but we give approval of those who do such things. In other words, deep down, we could say all we want about approving these practices and doing them ourselves. We know deep down that things we are doing and we try to justify and rationalize and we suppress the truth in our unrighteousness, trying to hold that beach ball under the water with all our might. We know it's wrong, but we have to act like it's not. Well, Paul says we all know deep in our conscience that we are doing things that deserve the death penalty, but we keep doing them, and we even urge others to do them, and we try to, we try to endorse those kinds of behaviors. That's all of us lost in our sin. So we know we, des we, we, know we need judgment. And it's maybe good news to us that the Hitlers of this world will be held accountable. 
That's the good news of judgment. God will right every wrong. No unjust deed will ever go unpunished. Look back at your history books. Read about history. Just today in Sunday school, Daniel 11, we heard about a lot of sinful kings in the Ptolemaic and Seleucid empires. Just centuries of wickedness going on between these two groups. And you know what? The Lord keeps count of all of it. There's a day coming in Revelation 20 when the books that contain all the deeds of all the people who've ever lived will be opened. These books are talked about in Revelation 20. They're also talked about in Daniel chapter 7, the same books, the books of works. And the books of works are open. And the Lord will walk through every single unjust, sinful deed that belittled His glory and wronged His people and wronged people in general, made in His image. And the Lord will hold everyone to account. That is in one sense wonderfully good news because we want justice to be done. At the same time, it is horrifyingly bad news because we all know that if God is going to hold Hitler accountable, God can't hold Hitler accountable and leave me unaccountable. If God's going to hold one person accountable, it would be unjust to only judge some and not others. And we all know that I may not seem as bad outwardly as some historical figures, but I know that if I stand before God's judgment, I am in enormous and eternal trouble. Therefore, final judgment is also horrifyingly bad news which is why we need what the rest of this passage is here to tell us about. We desperately need what the baptism of Jesus is talking about. Almost done with this first part. We're not just baptized by fire, we're baptized by the Holy Spirit. Think about these promises, Isaiah 44, 3. For I will pour, this is a prediction of the time of Christ and beyond. God says, for I will pour water, water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Ezekiel 36, I will come upon you with your heart of stone. It's callous. It's unfeeling. It will not change. It's not malleable. It's not teachable. It's made of rock. That's all of our hearts by birth, made of stone, unfeeling. The Lord says, I'm going to reach down. I'm going to take out your heart of stone. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh, not in Paul's sense of the sinful nature, our flesh, in the sense of malleable, teachable, movable. It can be moved and shaped by God. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to wash you with clean water, not waters of baptism, waters of the Spirit. I'm going to wash away your sin. I'm going to wash you of all your idolatry and uncleanness. I will put my Spirit within you, and I will teach you to observe statutes and be careful to walk in my decrees. Jeremiah says, I will put the, God says through Jeremiah, I will put the fear of me in my people's hearts so that they will not turn away from me. This is the promise of the new covenant. What a gift. We live on the other side of Pentecost. You understand, we have more access to the third person of the Trinity than the people did before Pentecost. The the floodgates have been opened. What once was a trickle, now the dam has been breached, and the Holy Spirit has been given out in a way that is beyond anything in the Old Testament. And now we have access to God by His Spirit. What a privilege we have to be shaped by the Comforter, the Counselor, the Advocate, the Holy Spirit who comes to dwell in us and to be among us. Now I want to move to the second main point of the sermon, verses 13 to 17. This is the baptism not that Jesus gives. This is the baptism Jesus received. I have to tell you, I think I'm so used to this story that I was missing a massive piece of what's going on here just because I've heard this story, it feels like hundreds of times in my life. And maybe you're like, grew up hearing this story so often that we don't think there's anything particularly surprising about the baptism of Jesus. It's just an obvious thing. It's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
He's baptized by John the Baptist. The Spirit comes down like a dove. We're like, yep, heard it, seen it, seen depictions of it. I know all about it. I heard it since I was three years old. Maybe you're thinking that. I have to tell you, I'm almost embarrassed by how much I missed an important point to this whole baptism of Christ. What I've missed is that it was shocking when it happened. I just missed it. I'm so used to it, it's hard to see it. John did not expect to baptize Jesus. That's astonishing. John actually objects to doing it. This is not, okay, I, I don't do altar calls, okay? So this is not an endorsement for altar calls. I want to say that very clearly. Don't do those. Okay. But I'm going to use an illustration involving an altar call just to make a point. I heard this from another commentator. I thought that, that's an interesting way to say it. Imagine you have an evangelistic tent meeting, okay? You've seen these. Maybe you've been to one. And every night there's, there's preachers preaching the gospel, and they urge people to walk forward down the center aisle and to, to lean down. Maybe they have like an altar or something like that. You lean down and you pray with someone you, 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 to receive Christ. And he said, imagine this. Imagine all week they've been, they've been saying, okay, on Friday night, we've got this incredible world-famous evangelist who's going to come preach, the greatest preacher of our day. He's going to come preach. Oh, you've you got to be here on Friday night for the preacher. That's just like John the Baptist, right? He's coming. He's coming. And then you get there on Friday night, and the preacher isn't preaching. The preacher instead walks down the center aisle kneels at the altar, and is praying down here where all the repentant sinners are. And you're going, this is not right. Something's wrong with this picture. Do you know what the baptism of John was? It was a baptism for sinners who were repenting of sin. And Jesus receives this baptism. Now, before I'm guilty of blaspheming, I did not say Jesus had sinned. It is crystal clear throughout all of Scripture that Jesus is the sinless one. Hebrews says He was tempted at all points, like as we are what? Yet without sin. And clearly here, God speaks from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He's not a sinner. And in the next chapter, he's going to go into the wilderness and be tempted for 40 days. And guess what? He's going to give in zero times. This is not a sinful man. So the shocking thing is John says, listen, I'm giving you a a really poor man's baptism. All I can do is wash you with water. But the one coming after me is going to wash you in the Holy Spirit, and he's going to also bring this fire, and he's the real deal. When he comes, that's going to be the real baptism. And when Jesus shows up to start doing his baptism ministry with the Spirit and fire, the first thing he does is says, nope, actually, I'm going to be baptized by you, John. And John goes, this doesn't make sense. And I, I have to think, this is very similar to Peter's objection, isn't it? Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, Peter, you... For once, you got it right. You're right, Peter. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to me, to, to you. My heavenly Father revealed this to you. And then Jesus turns to the disciples and says, I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to beat me. They're going to whip me. The religious leaders are going to spit on me. They're going to crucify me. I'm going to be buried. And on the third day, I'm going to rise. That's what the Messiah, the Christ, is going to do. And says what? Lord, I don't think you've... Uh, Lord... Peter takes him aside. Lord, uh, I know that you're the, the teacher here, but uh, yeah, that's not what happens to Messiahs. Messiahs triumph. They don't get killed. And Jesus says, what? Get behind me, Satan. You're not minding the things of God, but the things of man. Now, I'm not saying Jesus is strongly rebuking John here like that, but it does seem as though John is absolutely stunned by the fact that Jesus wants to be baptized by him. Let's read here. Verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, 
Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased." This is the astonishing thing that's going on here, I, and, and there's really not debate. This is amazing, just how many different pastors and commentators, just everyone holds the same view on this. I didn't really see much of an objection on this point. What is Jesus doing? He's beginning His ministry as the sinless one by publicly identifying with sinners whom He came to save. That is just astonishing to me. These waters in the Jordan are for sinners. And Jesus says, okay, I'm not a sinner, but I'm going to publicly identify with those I came to save. I'll say more about this in a moment, but I can't help thinking Jesus looking at John, and I don't think He said this, but I can almost imagine Jesus saying to John, John, if you think you're shocked by the way in which I'm identifying with sinners now, you just wait and see how far I will stoop to identify with sinners. The waters of the Jordan are nothing compared to where I will stoop in a few years on a cross. I can't help but thinking that's what's going on here. Jesus is saying, I am coming to get low with my people. I am sitting down to be with sinners. I'm not, I'm not going to sit, sit myself. Now, He could have stayed above them. He's infinitely more dignified than they are. But He stoops low and He comes into the waters and He publicly identifies with John's baptism. Look with me here at verse 15. But Jesus answered him, John, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, do you hear? Is Jesus a sinner? No. This baptism is a way He is fulfilling all righteousness. It's, it's hard not to think of Isaiah 53. Now, we know that chapter, but listen to Isaiah 53 verse 11. So, this is written 700 years before Jesus is born. Here's what it says. Out of the anguish of His soul, the suffering servant, he shall see and be satisfied. I think that means he sees what his death is going to do to save his people, and it makes him joyful. He's satisfied by what his death will accomplish. Then it says this, by his knowledge, the suffering servant, by his knowledge shall the, what's his name? The righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. See, even the Old Testament does not say that the Messiah is coming simply to take away our sins. I mean, that's an infinitely glorious thing. If you're infinitely in debt, you're a criminal that's committed unbelievable offenses, and you're on death row, the fact that someone would take your death in your place is astonishing grace. It is infinite grace. It is unimaginable grace that God the Son would come and die in the stead, in the place of sinners. That's astonishing. But that's not all He did. He also lived for our righteousness because we don't just want to be out of debt. We want to be positively spiritually wealthy. We want our righteousness not just to be infinitely in debt. We want our righteousness to be infinitely above zero. We want our righteousness to be infinite righteousness. So what does Jesus do? As the God-man, His death counts as our death. You know, after class a while back, I had a student, uh, I love these kinds of questions. Two students walked up to me, I think they're in the junior class, they walked up to me in the gym at school, between classes, and they said, it's a great question. They said, we got like three minutes, and it's like a huge question. Uh, hell is eternal punishment for sin. 
Right. Jesus was punished for what, six hours on a Friday, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m.? How could he extinguish the flame of God's judgment in six hours if it would take us all eternity? The unquenchable fire. How could Jesus quench the unquenchable fire in one Friday afternoon? And I said, that, that is a really perceptive question. And I said, here's the really, let me give you the short answer to the question. Jesus, if he was just a sinless man, couldn't have done that. But he wasn't just a sinless man. He was the sinless God-man. And Acts 20 says that God, it says the word theos, God, purchased the church with His own blood. Which means when Jesus died, it was infinite merit. It was infinite righteousness. It was an infinitely dignified person because He is the God-man who died on the cross. So Jesus could do in one lifetime and in one Friday afternoon... He could do something that we could not do given a billion and a trillion years of suffering for our sins. We could not do that. But Jesus is the God-man. And so He fulfills all righteousness to give us not just our sins being taken away, but giving us positive righteousness to stand before God. I'm sure I've said this before. Jerry Bridges has said this in an interview. He said, you've got to get the doctrine of Christ living a righteous life for you into your bloodstream because we fail. And here's the gospel you preach to yourself. You fail, you sin, you repent, you confess, you don't stay in it, you don't live in it, you confess it, you get back on your feet, and you preach this to yourself. Lord, I have sinned. What I've done deserves your judgment. I do not deserve the right to be called your son or daughter. Frankly, if it was sheer justice, you would have cast me out a long time ago. But when Jesus lived a humble life, I lived a humble life in Jesus. When Jesus lived a life of perfect integrity, I lived a perfect life of integrity in Christ by imputation. His righteousness is credited to me just as my sin is credited to Him. So, Jesus is going to fulfill all righteousness. And since, hear this, since God was calling the nation to the baptism of repentance through John, the prophet, who's God's Word. Let me say that again. Since God was calling the nation to the baptism of John through His prophet, and Jesus is part of that nation, then what does Jesus need to do to be obedient to the prophet? He needs to join the people into the waters, and He needs to go down, not because He's sinful, but because He is representing sinners and come up the other side. Now, we, we are not done. We've still got some things to cover here. Look at verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately He went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to Him. Now, let me just stop here. I've mentioned the second part of Isaiah, Isaiah uh, 40 to 66, which is all about what happens in the New Testament. In Isaiah 64, verse 1, as it's promising the future, it says, you can just hear Isaiah agonizing for the Lord to come. Lord, please come rescue us. And there's this amazing statement in Isaiah 64, 1, where Isaiah says, Lord, would you please rend the heavens and come down? And in Mark chapter 1, the baptism scene, you have almost the same language. The, the heavens were torn up open and the Spirit came down. This is the moment where God says, I'm answering Isaiah's prayer. I'm opening the heavens and I'm coming down in the form of my Spirit. And let me just say here as clearly and unashamedly as we possibly can, although the word Trinity is nowhere in the Bible, it is a, it's a word made up by the early church. It's a great word. It's not, no problem with the word Trinity. It's just not a word that's in the Bible, like a lot of words that we use that are not in the Bible. But it is certainly a biblical term because it's based on a biblical reality, which is that there are three persons in the one true God. There are not three gods. 
There are not simply three parts of God, and if you put them together, they make one true God. No, no, no. Each member of the Trinity is eternally and truly and fully God, and yet there is only one God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, I say this because there's a doctrine called modalism, and you know, let me give you maybe a more current word, Jesus-only oneness Pentecostalism. How about that for a tongue twister right there? So, Jesus-only oneness Pentecostalism. This is a heretical false teaching. I know a church in Athens that teaches it. I, yeah, I could say more. I won't. But uh, yeah, so Jesus' only oneness Pentecostalism is this idea, that Jesus is one God and only one person, and that in creation He played the role of the Father in the Old Testament mainly, and then in the incarnation He plays the role of the Son, the mode, modalism, the mode of the Son, and then at the Pentecost He takes on the mode of the Holy Spirit. So it is one person playing three parts. They would say it's like how you might be a student and a daughter and a teacher or whatever. You know, you, you play, I'm a father, I'm a pastor, and I'm also a husband. I'm one person playing three parts. That is Jesus only, oneness Pentecostalism. It is genuinely heresy. It is, it is a center circle attack on the gospel. If you believe Jesus only, oneness Pentecostalism, you don't believe the basic teaching of Christianity. We do not believe in one person playing three different parts. We believe in three eternal, co-eternal uh, persons who are all making the, the one true God. Three, one God, three eternal persons. Now, the reason why I, I want to stress this is because this passage is as clear as you get. Who's in the water being baptized? It's God the Son. Who is coming down from heaven in the form of a dove? It's not Jesus, and it is not God the Father. It is God the Holy Spirit. Who is speaking from heaven? Is Jesus doing voice throwing here? My dearly loved son, yes, uh, you are great. He's talking about himself. No, that's not what he's doing. Okay, I, uh, I, forgive me for being silly for a second. This is totally silly. Uh, I've said this before. I say this to my students sometimes. When I was young, I used to watch the Daffy Duck cartoons. Do we have any Daffy Duck? Okay, don't raise your hand. So, uh, I used to watch the Daffy Duck cartoons, and there was this hilarious, at least to me when I was like seven, hilarious to me Daffy Duck cartoon where Daffy Duck would be juggling over here, and then he'd be switching positions three different times in the room, and he'd be over here preparing a meal, and he'd be over here like sitting down at a table playing cards, and he was just one person flying back and forth, and he'd just making three different... Is that what Jesus is doing right now? No, I don't think so, okay? You've got three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And by the way, here's why this is really, really good news for us. This means that the God who made us is not a God who became loving when He finally made something He could love. You understand Allah in Islam is never called love because He had no one to love and nothing to love until He created His creation. He was eternally alone, a solitary person, Allah by Himself. He had no one to love. He is not love. But our God is love because God has always been, never will stop being a God in relationship. God the Father eternally loving God the Son by the Spirit. God the, the, the Son loving His Father by the Spirit. This is this unbelievable love relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is why we hunger for relationship. We are made in God's image. This is why love is such an important idea because it comes from how we are actually made. We are made in the image of God. And there is this incredible uh, unity and community in the mystery of the Trinity that we see on full display here. And by the way, how does Matthew end his gospel with Jesus giving the Great Commission? Now listen, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That is a pretty high status to give to those three individuals, isn't it? 
He's putting all of them on the same plane, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three distinct divine persons who are all eternally the one true God. Okay, I want to make an application. I know it's not Father's Day yet, but I do want to make an application to fathers. I heard this from another pastor, and I just thought, this is so good, it's convicting to me. So please don't hear me as if I'm doing this just right. This is something I want to be challenged by. Uh, so make a few applications to fathers, and then I want to draw this to a conclusion, and then, we will, then I will pray for us. Application to fathers. Again, this is coming from another pastor, but I thought this was helpful. God the Father is almost just, I mean, He is certainly the eternal and infinitely perfect Father in this moment, but you're seeing an illustration of what fatherhood can be. And listen, I know different stories in this room. Not everyone has had a wonderful father in their life. I I understand that. I'm not trying to make individuals feel bad who may be in that situation. I, I understand that. But here's the ideal father, what this looks like. Number one, the father was present with Jesus, not absent. So, men in the room who are dads or who will one day be dads, our job is to be present with our families to be present with our children, to be there when we are needed. Number two, He made His presence felt. He didn't just stand by passively. He made His presence felt by sending His Spirit in the form of a dove on His Son. Number three, He was present and He engaged with His Son. He was not present and… Number four, He identified Himself publicly with His Son. He said, this is my Son. To everyone listening, I'm proud of this this boy. This is my boy. I'm proud of him. Uh, that, that's the kind of way we can speak. He identified with his son. Number five, he expressed his love for his son. This is my beloved son. He publicly and unashamedly speaks of his love for his son. Children, I know the word need can be misused, but children are wired for this from their fathers and their mothers. Yes, but I'm speaking to fathers here. Fathers need this to to speak the love that they have for their son. Number six, he expressed his delight in his son. I mean, you you know what this is either like to have or to not have, do you not? The, 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 The love from the father. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The delight of a father to a son and what that does for the son. Here's an anti father. This is the father you should not be, a father who is absent, not present. He's just gone, doesn't call, doesn't seem to care. Number two, if he is present, he's emotionally absent. His presence is not engaged. Number three, if he had to be present, he would remain silent. He would not say anything. He would not show any emotion at all. Number four, if silent, he would therefore not identify himself as being with his son or his daughter. He's not proud of them in that sense. Number five, if silent, he would therefore not express his love. For his son or his daughter. And number six, if silent, he would therefore not praise or honor his son or daughter. So, fathers, I'm going to continue listening here. We need to be present. Unless providentially hindered, make your physical presence with your kids a high priority. I'm reading from another pastor right now. Be there for dinner. Be there for school plays. Be there for their basketball games. Be engaged when you are there. Pay emotional attention to your children. Don't go to the kindergarten graduation so you can check your email on your phone. Say something about your children. Talk about them. Register your presence in their lives verbally. Identify your son or your daughter every chance you get. This is my son. That's daughter. Everybody in your life should know who they belong to. Express your love for them and to them. 
Don't assume that such things go without saying. If ever they could have gone without saying, it would have been here at the baptism of the Son of God, and yet His Father still expressed His love publicly. This is my beloved Son. I am well pleased with Him. Praise your children. Have the praise come from your pleasure uh, in this and not because someone guilted you into it with a sermon. That's actually what He said in His sermon. So yeah, don't do it out of guilt. Do it because you love them and you delight in them. Now, I want to bring this to a close Let me just mention something here briefly from another spot here in Mark. Listen to this. I think I'm going to read this at the end of the service today, but just listen to part of this passage. Remember James and John go to Jesus and they say, Master, do for us whatever we ask on the way to Jerusalem. Remember this? Teacher, will you do for us whatever we ask of you? And Jesus says, what do you want me to do? They said, let us sit at your right hand or your left in your glory. Remember that? The self-centered request. And then I never get over Jesus' response to this. Because when you know what Jesus knew, and then you know what the disciples don't understand, it's just powerful. This is what it says. This is how it goes. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said, we are able. They said, we are able. See, Jesus says, hey guys, I know I've been baptized by John, but there's another baptism coming, and this is the real baptism. That one was more of a symbol in a sense. This one's the real thing. I'm going to be plunged under the floodwaters of God's holy, righteous judgment against sinners. I'm going to be drowned and die under the floodwaters of God's wrath, like Noah's flood, but I'm not in the boat. I'm out in the water. I'm going to be drowned in God's judgment on the cross. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to be raised to new life out of those floodwaters, and I'm going to be raised to rain. So let me just contrast the two baptisms of Jesus, and then I will pray. Back in Matthew 3, the one we've been focusing on, at this baptism, the Father is present. At the next baptism, In a true sense, the Father will be absent. At this baptism, the Father speaks His blessing from heaven. At the next baptism, Jesus becomes a curse. At this baptism, the Father Father publicly owns Jesus as His dear Son. At the next baptism, the Father is silent. At this baptism, the Father looks with a smile upon Jesus and lets His countenance shine upon Him. At the next baptism, the Father turns His face away. At this baptism, the Father pours His love upon the Son through the Holy Spirit. In the next baptism, the Father forsakes and abandons the Son. At this baptism, Jesus is publicly praised by others. At the next baptism, Jesus is mocked by the crowds who see Him. Jesus is anointed by the dove-like Holy Spirit. At the next baptism, Jesus is baptized into the floodwaters of God's indignation against your sin and mine and into the fires of God's holy and righteous judgment. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we certainly do not have any right on our own to call you Abba Father. Lord Jesus, you have every right to call God, your heavenly Father, as He is. We deserve to be eternally abandoned in the floodwaters of judgment, in hell, in the unquenchable fire. That's what I deserve. 
because of my sin. And yet, because Jesus was not ashamed to call us brothers, He came down into the waters of baptism with John present, and He stooped low to identify with sinners, but not nearly as He would later stoop. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And Jesus was forsaken by the Father. He was abandoned by you so that we can say with the author of Hebrews, I do not have any reason to fear because you will never abandon or forsake us. Lord, thank you for sending your Son to do what we could not have done, but what we deserved to do, which was to pay for our sins. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were joyful and willing to come and to die in our place for our sins and to rise triumphant from the dead. And thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have poured, that God has poured His love into our hearts through you, the Holy Spirit, as Romans teaches us. Lord, thank you that we have communion with you, I am God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, through your Spirit who lives in us. God, for anyone in this room who does not truly know you, at this moment, help them to understand that just as I once did, they right now stand under imminent judgment from you that is perfectly just, righteous, and holy. And if they will not turn from sin and trust in Christ as their Lord, Savior, and the treasure of their life, they will perish eternally in their sin. But if they turn even now and trust in the finished work of the dead, buried, and risen Jesus, they will be forgiven of all past, present, and future sin. They will be clothed with the imputed righteousness of Jesus. His perfect, sinless life will clothe them in righteous robes, and they will never have to fear being forsaken by the one true God. So, God, please be at work now as we sing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.